that song. Okay, let's um, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. Now that you've got your blood uh, juices going, you ought to be able to stay awake, huh? John 5, and let's do verses 1 through 23. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. I often wondered if that guy got immediately <laughs> struck with a worse disease. You know, he immediately goes out and sins again. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel." For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our desire to grow in our appreciation of who Jesus is as we look at it. Pray that you would bless and anoint my preaching and help me to faithfully bring your word. I pray that you would uh, bless and anoint our hearts and help us to be lovers and doers of that word. In Jesus' name, amen. May be seated. Well, today, as you can see from your outlines, I want to give some systematic theology. I have not done that in a while. And I think it's about time we get into some uh, systematic theology. And specifically, we're going to be looking at the deity of Jesus. Jesus is fully human, but he is also fully divine. In the incarnation, it was God the Son who took to himself a human nature, but he never stopped being God. Now, there is a heresy out there called the canonic heresy that takes 
misinterprets a passage in Philippians. He emptied himself. I believe he emptied himself of his life and of his privileges, but not of his godhood, as they say. He never ceased to be God. Uh, for example, even while he was here on earth, he claimed to be omnipresent. In uh, John chapter uh, 3 and verse 13, Jesus said, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Present tense, is in heaven. So even while he was talking to those people, he said, I'm in heaven. I'm down here, but I'm also in heaven. He says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. And after the sermon, we're going to be singing Psalm 45, which assigns all kinds of divine attributes to Jesus. It was a psalm that was kind of a puzzle to uh, the, uh, the ancient Jews. And Hebrews 1 quotes the psalm in these words. But to the Son, he says, and here comes the quote, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. He is called God by God. And it's a very interesting passage. Now, we could range all over the Scripture and looking at the deity of Jesus. And um, I'm going to restrain myself. I'm going to just look at John chapter 5, even though there are some passages in certain aspects that are stronger elsewhere. I think John 5 is a wonderful chapter that has within it everything we need to arrive to the conclusions. Jesus is fully human and he is fully uh, divine. And you might uh, uh, wonder... You know, why do we need to study this? Well, part of the reason is so that you can worship and adore your Savior for who He is, but also so that you can counteract error that is out there. I believe that one of our callings before the Lord is to bring reform to the church. Last week we looked at the statistics of uh, the church that have been done in various polls, and it is in sad, sad trouble. And the same is true when it comes to doctrine. You'd be amazed at the heresies that are rampant in the so-called evangelical church. Ancient heresies that were long ago settled, and they don't even know that they were settled. They don't even know that they are uh, 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 heresies that are out there. Plus, you've probably got people coming to your doorstep, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, but even in, in uh, you know, some of the mainline denominations, you've got pastors who... Uh, deny the deity of Jesus. I got a sermon uh, that I, I read this past week by a, uh, a pastor of a Methodist church, actually right here in Omaha, who says that Jesus never uh, claimed to be God. He certainly is not God. And uh, he made a bunch of other heretical assertions. But let me just quote from this sermon in a church that, you know, was once a very orthodox church. He says, I wish to point out now, however, that what persons came to believe about Jesus and the attributes inferred upon him may have little or nothing to do with who and what Jesus was as a historical person. I suspect that if Jesus had an opportunity to do so, he would strongly object and be greatly embarrassed that he has become God to so many. Without a doubt, Jesus was a wonderful human being. Nevertheless, we need to realize the strong probability that attributes of deity given to him, either then or since, were more a result of human need, hope, and perception than reality. The only area in which he demonstrated the power which we like to attribute to God was the great power of unconditional love, which, of course, they've totally misinterpreted even that, you know, what they've gotten. Uh, he goes on, he says, there are other areas in which we would like to have seen him demonstrate power, and he either didn't have the power or chose not to use it. 
he didn't even believe in miracles. In other words, he would discount the miracle that was done in this passage here. Chose not to use it. I am suggesting that he didn't have it because he was human and not God. I am suggesting that the teachings about him as God come from wishful thinking and the part of followers. Now, this is not just an oddball, uh, uh, you know, pastor. There are many pastors in the PCU, I mean, in the Methodist Church, actually, yes, in the PCUSA. Um, I've known pastors in the American Baptist Church that have said the same thing, that Jesus was merely a human and that he was not God. And the irony is they have done this by saying that this is not the inerrant word of God. They discount that. So what becomes the authority? Their mind becomes the authority. I mean, how do they know what is and is not? How do they know what happened 2,000 years ago? Uh, They don't, uh, but they make pretensions of uh, being an authority on this subject And the way that they do it, now this guy was a little bit more bold, but some of the pastors that I have known have couched it so carefully in language so that they will be accepted and they won't immediately get fired because uh, even in the mainline denominations, you make statements like that, you've you've got the danger of um, uh, getting fired from your position. But it's amazing how far that they have gone. And so typically what they will do is they will say, oh yeah, Jesus is a wonderful man. Uh, He's a a model for us. We need to follow what he has to say. And I I like what C.S. Lewis had to say to people like that. He said, no, Jesus does not give that option. Given the claims of Jesus, either he is a pathological liar, he is a lunatic, or he is God who he says he is. You don't have the option of his being a nice man, but not who he claims to be. No, there is no way that can, that can happen. Lewis says, let us not come with a patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so we're going to look at the claims of Christ. I'm not even going to look at Roman numeral two in your outlines today, just the claims of Christ. What does he claim to be? Does he claim to be simply a good, moral, uh, human teacher? And we have to say no. If you look at verse 18 you'll see John makes it quite clear as to what Jesus was claiming to be. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, and that's specifically the Sabbath of the land, the the Jewish Sabbath there, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now, this is John's evaluation. John says that by doing this, Jesus was making himself equal with God. With God. There was no getting around those words. If he was a good teacher, he would not have said those kinds of words if he was not God. And uh, if these words are true, which they most certainly are because they are are the inspired and errant word of God, then the only other option is that people like this pastor I quoted are teaching blasphemy and JWs hold to blasphemy. Uh, There is no way you can hold to uh, him being a good moral teacher and uh, then reject the conclusions of what he says. So let's take a look at these, uh, these claims, and later on you can maybe study what the other witnesses, the seven witnesses, say about these claims themselves. The first claim is that Jesus is equal to the Father in providence. Now let me set the context so that you can see what we're talking about here. In verse 16, uh, Jesus is accused of breaking the Sabbath. Was that a true or a false accusation? Well, it depends on what Sabbath you're talking about. Um, The uh, Sabbath of the the Pharisees or the biblical Sabbath. Look at verse 18 again. 
Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now there are two things that that John said that Jesus did, and the first one is clearly that he broke the Sabbath. Okay? Not just they thought he did, he broke the Sabbath. And for legalistic Jews of that day, this would have been a wonderfully liberating thing because the man-made Sabbath laws that had been instituted as the law of the land were utterly unbiblical. They had added all kinds of uh, man-made legalistic traditions. So don't get the idea that he broke the Sabbath of God. If he broke any of the Old Testament laws, he could not be our Savior. He had to fulfill all righteousness. He had to be a perfect representative keeping the law so that he could impute to us his righteousness. But he did indeed break the law of the land. Okay, he was a... He was a uh, civil, engaged in civil disobedience, if you will, okay? Because the law of the land was not following what the Bible called uh, the, the Sabbath. If you read in the Talmud, you will find hundreds of non-biblical Sabbath laws that were mandated in Israel. For example, you couldn't eat an egg if the uh, chicken laid it on the Sabbath because the chicken had to go and labor, you know, to produce this egg. And all kinds of ridiculous um, uh, additions like that. And what Jesus did over and over again, he could have waited till the next day to heal a lot of these people, but he went out of his way to heal people on the Sabbath that could have waited to make a point. It was a teaching and it was a confrontation of the legalism of the Pharisees. And if you trace all of the times that Jesus broke the Sabbath, you'll find he's teaching some new facet about the, uh, about the Sabbath at that time. And what he is teaching them in this passage is he is exposing their hypocrisy, their laziness, and their self-centeredness in the way in which they kept the Sabbath. Look at the intriguing answer he gives in verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. He says, if you accuse me of breaking the Sabbath, you're going to have to accuse God of breaking his own Sabbath, is what Jesus uh, was saying. Among other things, uh, Christ is showing them that these Pharisees have not been imitating God's Sabbath at all. God worked on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not an absence of all activity where you sit on your duffs and do nothing and watch TV and just be a lazy blob. No, the Sabbath involves all kinds of work. Now, you're setting aside one kind of work so that you can engage in another kind of work, but it takes work to worship. It takes work to study the scriptures. It takes work to minister in the lives of other people in the way in which Jesus did. It's not laziness, okay? And many people, in the way in which they exercise the Sabbath, they're lazy. They're not ministering. Going to a nursing home and ministering to people who are lonely in that place, that's a great Sabbath activity. It's exactly what Christ modeled uh, to, to us to do. Now, all of that could make a very interesting discussion of how we ought to observe the Sabbath. That's not my intent today. My intent is to show you that Jesus, by making this statement, is saying something about who he is. Jesus is saying that God the Father set aside his work of creation and began to exercise another kind of work called providence. And without providence we would disappear. 
All things are upheld by the word of his power. He had to keep working. We couldn't live. We couldn't move. We couldn't breathe. Nothing could happen in this world. None of the laws of gravity or anything else could work unless he was working. So he set aside one kind of work. And now from that time to the present, from Genesis 2 until the present, has been working in providence. And Jesus says, just as the Father has been working, the Son has been working. The Son is involved in this providential upholding of all things by the word of his power from Genesis 2 to the present. And so the Father's working is coordinate with the Son's working. He was equal with the Father in providence. That's exactly what he is saying. My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. And these people are, are uh, probably thinking, you know, what are you talking about, that there is no work on the Sabbath? They're saying no work on the Sabbath. Jesus says, no, there is a kind of work. But it's a work of life-giving. It's a work of ministry. It's a work where you're not serving yourself, but you're serving others. And so the Jews caught the full implication of that, and uh, they want to kill him. And they do it on two points. Number one, he was saying, I'm not going to submit to your legalism. And that ticks them off. And number two, he says, that he is claiming to be equal with God. Okay, the second claim is he is equal to God as to his nature. Look at the second clause in verse 18. The Jews try to kill him. Last clause, it says, because he also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now, you might wonder, how, how do the Jews jump to this conclusion that because Jesus calls God his father, that he's somehow equal with God? How does that follow? Uh, from the English, it may not be immediately intuitively obvious to us why that is. The Greek actually is very strong. If you read Greek, you'll see that, uh, uh, see that right off the bat. But let me explain it this way. Like begets like. Finite creatures beget finite creatures. Cats beget cats and dogs beget dogs. Well, God would beget God. And people might be a little confused and say, now, wait a minute, isn't God our father too? I mean, how does this follow with Christ? He is not father of us in the same way that he was father of Jesus. He did not beget us. He adopted us. Six times in the New Testament, Jesus is called the only begotten son of God. The only reason we are called sons of God is because of adoption, because we are united to Jesus, the only son, and therefore we can be called children of God. And so he, he, has, a, he has a shared nature with the Father that we do not have. Okay, we're not sons by nature, we are sons by adoption. And verse 18, therefore, indicates that he is claiming God as his own father by nature. One commentator said this, the Greek undoubtedly, it might be translated more clearly, said that God was his own particular father. Morris says he was claiming that he partook of the same nature as his father. This involved equality. Now, the Greek word is idios, not idiot, but idios, I-D-I-O-S. And it's the word we get idiosyncrasy from, that which is unique. Okay, and so Jesus has the Father unique to himself alone, is what he is saying there. God is his one and alone Father. In other words, there was a, there was a, a nature relationship uh, with, the, with the Father. And so if Jesus is a son by nature, not by adoption, that means he is God. 
because like begets like. Okay, finite creatures would beget finite creatures. God would beget God. And uh, this is uh, an inescapable conclusion. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses try to escape from that, and they've got a clever argument in which they try to get around this, and here's the argument. They say, a son is logically always younger than the father. He comes into existence after the father, or he wouldn't be a son, would he? And if he comes into existence after the father, he's not eternal. If he's not eternal, he can't be of the same nature as God. He can't be equal with God, and therefore he cannot be God. Well, I would say in response to that, that uh, let's just lay aside the logic for a second. You're just flat out contradicting what John said. John just finished saying that he made himself equal with God, okay? So that ought to wipe that out right off the bat. But the second thing is that they are doing a logical fallacy. They are applying apples to oranges, okay? They are applying something that they understand about themselves as human, finite, temporal-bound creatures that all of our sons are younger than us because we had a beginning. We have an end. We're bounded by time. We, have, uh, we, have, uh, we, we don't have eternity. And so it's of the very nature of us to beget finite younger creatures but with God it's different because he is above time he is eternal creatures can never escape the the sequence of time God is above that and so Isaiah 9 6 calls God the eternal father now think about that if God is an eternal father that means there can never be a time when there is not a son otherwise he would not be eternal father he's father from this time forward but not eternal if he's eternal father there has got to be an eternal son. Now, you may not be able to grasp all of that, and I don't think anybody can fully grasp eternity or the nature of God, but what we can do is say, we're going to take the Bible at face value when it says that Christ is equal with the Father. We're going to believe that he is equal with the Father. But I think it helps to realize like begets like. Finite creatures would beget finite creatures, but an eternal, infinite God can only beget God a God that there is no beginning and no ending to. It's hard to understand, you know, when you're above time. How do you understand something that's not sequential? We, we're bound by sequence, right? But the Scripture says God, uh, God is not. Okay, the third claim of Jesus is that He is so one with the Father in essence of being that it is impossible for Him to do anything independently of the Father. Uh, in other words, there are two persons, but there are not two gods. There is one God. They are one in essence. Look at verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. The Son cannot do anything that the Father does not do, and the Father can't do anything that the Son does not do. They are one in essence. They're not two gods. If they were two gods, that wouldn't make any sense whatsoever because there would be some things that they would do independent of each other. And if Jesus was not God, this would not make any sense either. The Son is distinct from the Father as to personhood. That's very clear here. But He is one with the Father as to Godhood. And there's an awesome proof. Uh, there is not a thing the Father does that the Son does not also do. So let's just take a, a few examples of this. The Scripture says that the Father fills all things in all. He fills the whole universe. Well, it says the same thing about Jesus. Ephesians 1.23 speaks of Christ who fills all in all. The Father created the worlds out of nothing. Well, 
John chapter 1 says that there is nothing in this world that Jesus did not create. He created everything that came into this universe. There's a oneness of essence since, since um, all three persons of the Godhead are one indivisible essence, it's impossible for one to do something that the other is not involved in. Just take the resurrection of Jesus, for example. It says in, in um, John 2, verse 19, and in John 10, verse 17, Jesus says that he would raise himself from the dead. He would lay down his life. He would take it up again. He would raise himself up. But it says in Romans 8, 11, that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And it says in Galatians 1, 1, that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Well, which one is true? Well, they're all true. Because one cannot be involved without the others being in some way involved in an action. Now, let me just read you some comments from some ancient uh, teachers on this subject. Uh, the early church uh, used this verse amongst many other verses in arguing for the Trinity. And Augustine said, Our Lord does not say, Whatsoever the Father doeth, the Son does other things like them, but the very same things. If the Son doeth the same things and in like manner... Then let the Jew be silenced, the Christian believe, the heretic be convinced, the Son is equal with the Father. Here's another author. The words, what things, what things soever, are without limit. All that the Father does, the Son likewise does. This is as high an assertion as possible of his being equal with God. If one does all that another does or can do, then there is proof of equality. If the Son does all that the Father does, then like Him, He must be almighty, omniscient, all-present, and infinite in every perfection, or in other words, He must be God. Uh, another church father uh, by the name of Hillary says, Christ is the Son because He does nothing of Himself. He is God because whatsoever things the Father doeth, He doeth the same. They are one because they are equal in honor. He is not the Father because He is sent. In other words, there's distinctions between the persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, but there is one essence, one Godhood. Now, if this verse is true, which it most certainly is, it's the Word of God, then all of the other verses, all of the other points naturally have to follow. Point D, Christ must be equal in knowing. Even though the Son comes from the Father and He receives His knowledge from the Father... He still has to be equal in knowledge to the Father or there would be a division in the Godhead. Verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself does, and He will show Him greater works than these that you may marvel. Now this emphasizes the distinction between the, the, the persons of the Trinity. There are different ways of knowing. And so, uh, since the Father begets the Son and the Spirit proceeds from the Father, there's going to be an order of relationship from Father to Son to the Holy Spirit in terms of the way in which they act. Uh, but um, uh, it says that the Father here shows him all things that he himself does. Now, if the Father is omniscient, that means Jesus has to be omniscient. And that's exactly what Scripture says. The Bible says, in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, if God were to show a mere human being everything that he knows, our mind couldn't even possibly contain it. But the mind of Christ can. It says, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2, 3. From eternity past, God the Father showed the Son his plan and... Um, you know, through eternity future, there's a communication between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By the way, this is one of the proofs that Francis Schaeffer 
the late Francis Schaeffer uh, gave of the Trinity. He said that all of the attributes of God necessitate, they logically necessitate communication. Now just imagine what, the, what would happen before there was a universe, before there were any angels, before there was any man, God was all by himself, if there was not a trinity, okay, it speaks in this verse of his loving, Father loves the, the Son, but let's just say that there was not any trinity, the scripture says God in his very essence is love, right? And it specifies agape love, that it's a self-giving love, a sacrificial love, a love that communicates, that goes out, that gives. If there was nobody to give to, what kind of a love would that be? If he expresses his love, that means that his love would be a self-centered love. And so you look at the kind of love in Islam, or you look at the kind of love in Unitarianism, it is utterly different than the Christian conception of love. But if love is outgoing, how could that be if there were no other persons? It only makes sense if there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loving each other from all eternity. It's always a non-selfish, self-giving, outgoing love. And so Francis Schaeffer said, you start to examine all of the attributes of God, you realize there had to have been a trinity from all of eternity past. Otherwise, it's not communicating. Anyway, th this one, that's going way off the track. Equal in knowing, okay? But Jesus is equal not just in knowing, but also in the specific acts of doing. Uh, first, the resurrection is mentioned in verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. That verse is indicating that every person that the Father raises from the dead, Jesus raises from the dead. Every person he gives life to in any other category, the Son gives life to as well. And so this is one of many verses indicating there is a unity of will between the Father and the Son. All that the Father wills, the Son wills to do. Verse 22 shows him to be equal in judging. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Now, Scripture indicates the Father is involved in judgment, but in a different way than the Son is. The Father uh, is the plan. Jesus executes that plan. And... Um, uh, that's true, really, in terms of everything that he does. The Father had the plan for creation. The Son spoke that plan into existence. The Spirit energized this, this world. Now, there are distinctions, but all are involved. And once again, a unity of purpose and will and power. And so in point G, verse 23 shows them to be equal in honor. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Man! <laughs> I don't know how heretics can get around words like that, that we should honor the Son in exactly the same way that we honor the Father. He says that we should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. <clears throat> can you see why C.S. Lewis says it's absolutely ludicrous to say that Jesus was a good moral teacher but not God? Because if he said things like this, that is blasphemy against God blasphemy against God to say, you have to honor me in the same way that you honor the Father. If he was not God himself, that would be blasphemy. But if he is truly God, then these others are blasphemers that we can have no fellowship with. You're either for him or you're against him. And so he's equal in honor. Verses 24 through 25, we have the Son 
equal with the Father in giving justification, a new legal lease on life, entrance into the kingdom of life. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. Okay, that's already happened. And then he talks about a future entrance through resurrection. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. <clears throat> Whether you're talking about our conversion or future resurrection, Christ's power, I mean, Christ's word carries all the power of God's word because it is God's word. Okay? God spoke the worlds into existence. How did he do it? It was through the Son. He said, let there be light. There was light. Well, John chapter 1 says that Jesus was that powerful word. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him was nothing made that was made. In him was life, etc. It's through Christ that our spirits are resurrected. It's through Christ our bodies will be raised. And yet the Father is involved in all of that. I mean, it's just a, a, a wonderful thing. He's equal with the Father and having the power of conversion, justification, entrance into God's kingdom. And then finally, in verse 26, Christ says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Okay, both Father and Son are the source of life. Now, that could not be true if there were two gods or if Jesus was not God. Here it says they, have, they are equally the source of life. As the Father so the Son, which means that they were self-existent. Now, what difference should this all make in our lives? Well, it makes all the difference in the world for our salvation. Because in order for us to be saved, he had to be a mediator between God and man. He had to be fully God to represent God. He had to be fully man to represent man. And so our salvation depends upon him being the God-man. Uh, it's something we should never cease being uh, tired of you know, of thanking him and glorying in what he has done and blessing him. Second, it makes a difference in our confidence in approaching God in prayer. Uh, some in church history have thought of God the Father as being a distant, remote, austere, wrathful God, and Jesus as being the one who's close and who's tender and the one who, who loves us. And then later on in the Middle Ages, there were some who thought, boy, even Jesus is a little bit too uh, austere. We need to go to Mary. And that's just a sad development that you see. But we need to realize it's God the Father who sent the Son. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son into the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. See, the Father and the Son are absolutely united in, in their wrath, they're united in their love. They're united in salvation. If you have fellowship with one, you have fellowship with the other. And we can approach the Father with a full confidence and boldness of knowing He is one in essence with His Son and all of the attributes. Third, this doctrine affects many other doctrines. For example, you cannot separate between the purposes of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And some people do. For example, uh, four-point Calvinists, known in France as Amarildians, held that the Father's will was different from the Son's will in terms of who the atonement would be applied to. One applied it to the whole world or wanted it applied, and the other wanted it applied only to the elect. Uh, but look at verse 30. 
I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Uh, look at John 6, 37 through 40. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. This is one of several fatal flaws in Amaroldianism, besides the fact it's just illogical. And then finally, we should just desire to know the truth about Jesus Christ. He's our Savior. We love him. We should want to know more about him. And... In the next section of Scripture, Jesus appeals to the seven witnesses who also testified to the truth of uh, his claims. But if we study those claims in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it'll blow our mind and it'll make us want to worship him. At least that's what it does to me. You know, when I meditate on the greatness and the awesomeness of who Jesus is, it makes me want to fall down and to worship him. We have an awesome Savior, a Savior who is fully God and fully man, a Savior worth trusting. Amen? And if you have not yet put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, I would urge you to do so. Because if you do not trust him as Savior now, you will face him as judge one day. You cannot divide between father and son. Uh, this chapter has bold claims, claims that make Jesus either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord of this universe. And it's my prayer that absolutely every person in this congregation here would do as um, Doubting Thomas did. Bow down before Jesus, worship him, and say, my Lord and my God. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for the incredible gift of salvation. Father, what mystery there is in the Godhead, and yet what you have revealed. Uh, you have revealed that we may keep your words all of our lives, and we do revel in your word and what it has revealed about you. And Father, we look forward to the time when we come to heaven and we can enter more and more throughout eternity of learning many different dimensions of you and your character. Father, we'll never be able to plumb the depths, but I pray that in these intervening years between now and the resurrection, we would begin to enter into a knowing of you, not just intellectually, but in terms of our walk and our experience with you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all glory, praise, and honor be to you. Thank you, Father, for your plan from eternity past. And thank you, Jesus, for having died to accomplish that plan. And for your power and your word and your communication to us. And thank you, for Holy Spirit, for applying that redemption in our lives. All praise go to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.